0: I'm Karen Grigsby Bates, and this is Code Switch from NPR. Y'all remember twenty twenty, right? Sometimes it feels like yesterday. Sometimes it feels like it was a million years ago. 2020 was the last year of Trump's presidency, the year that COVID was declared a global pandemic, and the year that you couldn't go five minutes or read five sentences without stumbling upon the phrase racial reckoning. The country, some said confidently, was having the biggest racial reckoning since the civil rights movement. But in the months, and now more than a year since the summer of 2020, the Code Switch team has been wondering, what was actually being reckoned with, and by whom? And what would the backlash be? After all, it was almost exactly a year ago, January sixth, twenty 2021, that insurrectionists stormed the U.S. Capitol. Many of them expressed fear of and animus toward the Black Lives Matter movement. So today on the pod, we're revisiting this episode, hosted by Jean Demby and Shireen Marisol-Miraji, about how public support for racial justice issues waxed and then waned. Here's Shireen. In June
1: of 2020, the early days of the pandemic, it seemed like most of the nation's attention was focused on the police killings of George Floyd in Minneapolis and Breonna Taylor in Louisville. People took to the streets across the country in outrage, even in cities and small towns that were almost entirely white.
2: Mm -hmm. And around that same time last June, a poll came out from the Pew Research Center that found that solid majorities of Americans, about two thirds of all respondents, Across racial and ethnic groups and political parties, expressed support for the Black Lives Matter movement.
1: Oh, and corporate America wanted in on the action, too. Mm-hmm. Companies from big box retailers to bidet manufacturers.
2: The NFL, <laughs> too, of all people, oh, the NFL. Oh,
1: yes. The NFL, they all release statements about the moment or they pledge to give money to quote unquote racial justice. News story after news story, essay after essay, sermon after sermon, called it a time of racial reckoning for the entire country.
3: 2020 was the year that forced Americans from all walks of life to pay attention to a movement and have some tough conversations about race.
0: Millions took to the streets last summer in some of the largest protests in U.S. history. History that needs to be reckoned with as we search for a way forward. So,
2: Shereen, just... Like on our side of things, when all this is going down, I know this is probably true for you. I saw this wall of new white faces on my Instagram feed, like thousands <laughs> of new followers, who've been pointed to Code Switch, you know, on one of those yeah. anti-racist reading lists.
1: It was very surreal. I was like, "Ooh, should I make my IG private?" I'm still wondering if I yep. should make it private or do something different with it. Anyway, yes, Absolutely. it's very it's odd,
2: very strange. So I said, "Okay, all right, white people, y'all are here now. Since you're here, I have some questions." <laughs> Like, what is it about this moment that has you suddenly activated? And hundreds of people responded, like, earnestly Mm -hmm. and awkwardly. And if we keep it real, like, not all that convincingly. A
1: lot of people mentioned it was because the video was so shocking. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, of course, we know that George Floyd wasn't the first black person who's killing at the hands of the police in Minneapolis even was caught on video because we covered Philando Castile's death on the podcast, which was in 2016.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, Eric Garner was killed by the police in New York City in eerily similar circumstances to George Floyd. That was also captured on video. Some of Eric Garner's last words were very similar to George Floyd's, I can't breathe. That became a rallying cry among protesters. That was back in 2014. And both those stories, Fernando Castillo, Eric Garner's, were national news. George Floyd's death was horrible, but as a news story, it wasn't new, it wasn't different.
1: But getting back to your IG query and all those white people who chimed in, almost every person who responded Mm -hmm. mentioned President Trump's rhetoric or... The pandemic, and we wondered. So, what happens if Trump is no longer president, and when folks can go outside again, mm-hmm. <laughs> will these newly activated white people still be in the trenches fighting for racial justice? Will they even be paying attention?
2: And Sharmeen, we saw not long after all that was going down some signs that that shock and anger was waning. By the end of last summer, Pew found that while support for the Black Lives Matter movement remained, you know, real high among people of color, especially among black folks and Asian-Americans, white people were jumping ship. In June of 2020, 60 percent of white Americans said they supported Black Lives Matter. By September, though, a majority of white people said they did not. And a big part of the context here was that there was a presidential election going on last year. And this became a major part of the partisan rancor.
1: Even more than usual. Mm -hmm. And fast forward a little bit to May of 2021, a year later, a year after Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were killed, a consulting firm called Creative Investment Research found that of the $50 billion pledged Mm -hmm. by corporations for quote-unquote racial justice, almost none of it had actually materialized into anything.
0: Hmm.
2: So was any of this racial reckoning even real? We asked our white listeners, again, to tell us how they were feeling and what they were doing a year out from last summer's protest, and we got a lot, a lot of feedback. Here's some of what people told us.
1: I'd say my views on racial justice have gotten a lot more radical.
0: I would say, like, if there's anything in the last year that's new about my views, it's uh, the conversation around the defunding of the police effort.
3: I have gotten More deeply involved in community organizing as part of a multiracial movement to end white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. I have also
0: really seen it as my responsibility to talk to other white women. Increased uh, regular monthly contributions to, like, the NAACP uh, Legal Defense Fund, the ACLU, uh, American Negro College Fund.
4: I started a book club at work, and we meet once a month during our lunch hour, and we talk about. You know, I mean, it really is a bunch of well-meaning white ladies talking about race, but that's how this kind of stuff starts. I was definitely the white lady at
1: the bookstore buying a lot of books by Black authors, um, so I hope I've filled in their royalties a little bit. I centered myself in a lot of activism, so I basically wanted a cookie. And I've now realized that it's not about me, and I actually need to do all of the -the behind-the-scenes work so that other
0: people can use their own voices to tell their own stories
2: so obviously shereen you know the white folks who listen to coast which are very particular you know subset of white folks i think we can say uh, yeah and the responses we got from them are not really representative of white people in the aggregate as we're about to hear um <laughs> i spoke to two political scientists who think about this cohort of white people a lot
3: My name is Hakeem Jefferson. I'm an assistant professor at Stanford University.
4: And my name is Jennifer Chudy, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at Wellesley College.
2: Hakeem and Jennifer are good friends. They're bi-coastal friends like you and me, Shereen. Yes. They go back a long ways, back to when they were both campus tour guides as grad students at the University of Michigan. Oh,
4: I love that. And then we ended up actually being roommates and living together for two, three? Many years. Many, many years In a a rundown yellow house that hosted Ann Arbor's best graduate student parties, which I don't even know what that means when (laughs) we're all as nerdy as we are.
1: Uh-huh. I'm imagining nerd ragers with fancy whiskey, very peaty, very smoky, perhaps. We know grad <laughs> students can't really afford it, but because they're nerds, they're going for it. And and regression models, of course.
2: <laughs> of course, of course. And they are still very nerdily chopping it up. Uh, in May, they together scoured some public opinion data in order to write this essay for The New York Times. It's called Support for the Black Lives Matter Movement Surged Last Year. Did it last?
1: That is a great question. And I have a feeling I know the answer because I'm a cynic.
2: I have a feeling I know what your feeling is. So in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's killing, they thought that people were perhaps not paying enough attention to some pretty well-established patterns about white public opinion and issues of race. Here's Hakeem.
3: You know, I think I remarked at the time, yeah, it's good these white folks are there, but they're all going to go back to their fairly lily white neighborhoods, they're lily white schools, and they're not going to have the sustained engagement with the political agenda of the movement. And Jen, I don't know, I, I recall that being somewhat of your sentiment too, but maybe my memory is different.
4: Yeah, I I, I similarly said, you know, um, they have uh, built a society um, in which it's very easy to segregate themselves from these issues. But additionally, I um, uh, you know, I don't know if this is eye rolling or what, but, um, I had said to one reporter, you know, it's not going out on a limb if you say murder is bad. So we have this very, um, graphic, indisputable, um, you know, viscerally upsetting murder. And so how much progress is it if white people are like, oh, that was bad. Yes, uh, I hope they would say that is bad. That is such a low bar to admit uh, to something like that is upsetting. But, you know, kind of this is where my research comes in, these more ambiguous episodes where there aren't eyewitness accounts or when it's not some uh, resulting in murder is where you see um, white sympathy kind of trickle off. And uh, that. Uh, is important to note as well. Um, Yes, we could conjure up sympathy for this moment with this egregious act of violence, but what about other instances? And also, what about when the country isn't in um, this totally bizarre state of lockdown with few other distractions?
1: Listening to that makes me think about all the people who get their bones broken or who are bitten by police dogs Mm -hmm. and horribly injured that we never hear about. But I digress.
2: Yeah, all those sub-fatal encounters with the cops, right? Yeah. And that's where some of Jen's previous research comes in, right? So she spent years studying white people, particularly white people, she says, who feel racial sympathy and racial guilt. But at the height of the racial reckoning,
4: I was kind of conflicted because within my discipline, I've done a lot of work trying to convince people, oh, these white people exist and they're interesting to study.
3: These white people being racially sympathetic white people. Racially right? sympathetic
4: yeah. white people. And then George Floyd happened. and I said, these aren't the pe- these aren't this isn't real. Um, and so uh, so it was uh, it felt a little bit like a contradiction um, because in my own academic work, I've tried to. Uh, stress the importance of these types of unique white racial attitudes. But then um, with what was unfolding last summer, I uh, was much more skeptical that uh, this is actually what we were seeing.
1: Ooh, that is fascinating. And before we go any further, though, we need to define some terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm hearing sympathetic and I'm hearing guilty. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: We know what those things mean in the real world, I I feel <laughs> both of those things all the time, especially guilt, uh, yeah. because I was raised Catholic.
2: Me too. We we're both raised Catholic. Shout yes, out to the Catholic Church and we generational were. trauma for
1: <laughs> for sympathy
2: and guilt. And...
1: Uh, two great tastes that go great together.
2: Anyway, so <laughs> yes, related to these points, right? Jennifer studies you know white public opinion about race, and she's using sympathy and guilt in a particular way when it comes to polls and surveys. So when she talks about racially sympathetic white people. Who she's talking about is
4: white people who feel distress when they learn about black suffering. Now, black suffering can be very uh, violent and, and, and ambiguous, you know, as was the case with um, George Floyd. But it can also be, um, you know, uh, microaggressions. And so, there are some white people who feel distress when they learn about that whole spectrum of suffering. And uh, what makes a white person like that is, uh, you know. The environment they were raised in, the kinds of uh, values they've picked up along their lives. uh, Those are all things that could contribute to a white person feeling sympathetic. All right. That's sympathy. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Let's talk about guilt.
2: Right. So guilt, as Jennifer defines it, is racial sympathy, but also that comes with a sense of personal responsibility. White people who feel racial guilt, she says, are the people who feel implicated in racism.
4: So white people can feel sad about black distress but guilt has the extra level of that is you know something upsetting and i as a white person feel like i'm somehow um you know culpable
1: or responsible for this scenario hmm. so jean maybe guilt isn't as bad as we thought it was because <laughs> in this case guilt might motivate white people to take action for something good, for right. the good of mankind. Right. Humankind, <laughs> sorry.
2: <laughs> Potentially, right? Spoilers, there are some big caveats to this that we're going to get to a little bit later. But, okay. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to white people who care about anti-black racism at all...
4: Well, there's a spectrum. It's not like white people are either have sympathy for black people or they don't. It's kind of like um, some white people have no sympathy for black people, and some white people have tons of sympathy for black people. So it's not as clean as, you know yes or no. Um, and the um, percentage of white people who, if you tell them about Black suffering, many different like little iterations or stories of Black suffering, uh, less than 20% feel sympathy towards kind of every flavor of Black suffering, from microaggression to physical altercations akin to what George Floyd faced. So um, that said the percentage of white people who admit that they carry guilt is, I would say, lower than 10%. Wow.
1: Those are not substantial numbers. And so when
4: I was watching this unfold and seeing this being kind of explained as a broadly felt sentiment among white Americans, um, my thought was uh, just, like, Disbelief or, you know, this was a mischaracterization, um, because I, having studied this these kind of attitudes among white people for years, I knew that it was um, much more rare.
3: In the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder, you might get a bunch of white people who have all sorts of emotions that are, that are exercised and, and the like, but then we have to wonder about how long-lasting any of these feelings attached to a particular episode, detached from somebody's imagined pattern of how these things work in the world, like how long-lasting is any of that going to be?
1: How long-lasting is it going to be?
2: We are going to get into all of that after the break.
1: Stay with us. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Jo explains the importance of creating a safe space for therapy. I can't tell you how many times I've had clients that say that expression like I've never told that to anybody. That's when I know I've made some kind of momentous move with this person. They feel safe enough to expose that part of themselves and doing that together with somebody else can be very powerful. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com/code. Jean, Shireen.
2: Code switch.
1: Before the break, we were talking to Jennifer Chudy and Hakeem Jefferson about how George Floyd's murder made a percentage of white people feel momentary sympathy for the plight of Black people.
2: Mm-hmm. At least, you know, as expressed in support for the so-called Black Lives Matter movement, right? So I wanted them to help us crunch these numbers like, OK, what did the high watermark of the support for the Black Lives Matter movement look like last year, you know, in the days in weeks immediately after George Floyd's death. And Hakeem reminds us that spike was a real thing. And, and I mean, this is what everybody was talking about.
3: Uh, and this is why Jen and I were being approached by reporters asking us, what do you think of this? When I saw that peak, I was inspired by it, but I thought this is going to go away as soon as the sort of news moves away from George Floyd or uh, to a point that Jen was making. White folks have... Uh, Uh, easy cases of amnesia when it comes to race. And so you go back to the everyday uh, movements of life, you're distracted, uh, the movement uh, becomes less attached to this visceral, uh, murderous event, uh, and now the movement is about all that other stuff that you don't like?
1: Like maybe abolishing the police, Mm -hmm. or reparations, or... Equal access to healthcare and education, the kind of issues that we've been talking about a lot on Code
2: Switch. Right, right. Hakeem walked us through the data showing this big drop off in support among white Americans.
3: Among white Americans, there's not just this return uh, to normal. This would be for for listeners trying to follow along with the plots in the essay. This would be that third uh, plot that's in the piece. Uh, where white folks are depicted with a purple line, Uh, a return to baseline would have just been at that zero line, right? At that zero line. That would say that white opinion toward Black Lives Matter has just returned to where it was on January the 1st, 2020.
2: But they found that white support didn't just return to pre-George Floyd levels. Instead, what we see Is that purple
3: line, right, and the current period is below the zero line, which suggests that in the aggregate overall, on average, white support for Black Lives Matter is now lower than it was on January 1st, 2020.
1: So for the people in the back who did not hear that, white support today is lower than it was before Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were killed by the police.
3: Now, in the aggregate, yeah, white people have uh, more negative uh, views toward the movement than they did uh, in January 2020, before George Floyd was murdered.
1: The public opinion research available is telling us that support for BLM from white people has mostly evaporated. Jen Chudy's research that she was telling us about before the break showed that most white people don't really care about anti-black racism, period. But here on Code Switch, we are always hearing from white people who write in and talk to us about all the reasons why they want to be anti-racist and how hard they're working on that. So many of our listeners rep that tiny, tiny percentage that Jen was telling us about. So I want to know, who are those white people who make up that tiny percentage, who are sympathetic? And, you know, do we have more demographic data on them?
2: Yeah, this was something that I was very curious about, too. Like, are there through lines? What do we know about who those people are? And Jen said, okay, again... We're talking about a very small percentage of white people, right? But that those racially sympathetic white people tend to be Democrats. Mm -hmm. That's the identity that comes through most consistently in the public opinion research. Um, That's probably not too surprising given how partisan these issues are, how partisan they tend to be framed. But after that, Jen says, we can't really say anything too definitive.
4: It's not the case that um, they are more often young or um, more often, I thought, maybe it's more often to be uh, women because um, women are often socialized to feel bad for people, um, and that's not the case either. Uh, you know, they do tend to live in cities, um, but here we get into kind of a selection, um, you know, to talk social science. Did the city make them have those attitudes or did they have those attitudes so they moved to the city? Um, and so it's a little bit um, dicey to suss out. They also, I should say, the other kind of reliable uh, predictor um, is that they tend to have higher levels of education. And again, it's, um, you know, here's social sciences Again, it's also selection effect. Do those folks who want more education have these values and education wrapped up in that? Or does having more education lead a white person to become more sympathetic or more Um, have higher levels of guilt. So it's hard to know which way the arrow flows. But there is some diversity within that too. You know, as I said, I thought they would be young, not necessarily. And then uh, I thought maybe having um, additional marginalized identities, whether gender or um, sexuality or religion, um, and those uh, don't seem to be as reliable as I had kind of thought they might be. I think it's funny because when I have talked with journalists about uh, this, you know, many of whom live in places like New York and, and D.C. Uh, and and some of whom are white, there's just shock that um, the numbers are as bad as they are for white people and uh, it just... Uh, speaks to, you know, the high degree of political polarization that other folks have written about. Um, And if that's crazy to a white person, then they are not hanging out with a representative group of uh, white Americans, which who among among us is hanging out with a representative group of Americans uh, to begin with?
1: I said earlier in the show that... I was a cynic, Mm -hmm. but it's really impossible to work on the race beat for as long as we have been doing this and not be skeptics. Mm -hmm. You know, we're also journalists. So, so that's in our DNA. It actually showed up in my um, genetic testing results.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Iranian, Puerto Rican and skeptical.
1: Yes, that was it. Uh, Seriously though, we were, we were side-eyeing the rise in white American support and momentum for racial justice that came after George Floyd's murder. Mm -hmm. And it sounds to me like Hakeem and Jennifer share in our healthy skepticism.
2: Mm -hmm. They do. They do.
1: So I hate to ask the question, Gene, but I'm going to ask the question. All right, hit me. Do they think that this racial reckoning that was such a huge deal actually meant
2: anything? Yeah. So, okay, so Serena, this is what they told me. And you might find this unsatisfying. It... Is not definitely yes, right? But it's also not a complete no. I, you know, wait.
1: Jenna... Let me interrupt. Is it complicated?
2: Oh my god! We almost got through the whole episode, and you only said. But yeah, let's get into it. Um, I'm just going to play you some of the conversation that I had with them. Maybe it is meaningful
3: that we've got new language to talk about uh, the state of policing and the U.S., that the discourse has shifted, right? More people are aware, uh, perhaps, that these are serious issues. Uh, And so I don't want to throw cold water on all of that, Uh, but I think if we think of what we've reported here, or documented here, as being a reflection of, okay, when white people say they're committed to the cause of racial justice, how long-lasting, how meaningful, how significant is that? How much should we run to the bank and say, like, we've got some, we've got some folks on our side? I think these data that we share and, and, and write about here uh, presents, at least for me, a sort of depressing look at what we can expect from a lot of white Americans, not all of them, but a lot of white Americans when these sorts of
2: moments come into view. Having looked at all this data... And sat with it, what do the two of you think it tells people who are trying to make specific, tangible advances in racial justice in the world? Is the issue about, like, getting enough white people to help, or is it about getting enough white people to just, like, not get in the way? Ooh, I get to to defer first to Jen. uh, Mm
3: -hmm. And I'm just going to say, Jen, you've talked to all these white Mm -hmm. folks. I mean, you've been interviewing them and studying them and writing about them at great length. Well,
4: I think, you know, one way to interpret the responses you got is a lot of this is bound up in partisanship. The fact that they name Donald Trump, um, who is uh, not only the president, but, you know, the leader of the Republican Party. Um, and we do see that white, uh, those white Americans who identify as Republicans are kind of driving the support for Black Lives Matter South. Um uh, does suggest that there is a role here for parties. There is a role for the Democratic Party to not sweep this under the rug, but to really, you know, talking about sitting with it. Um, so I think in terms of like action items, um, uh, there should be some acknowledgement that this is tethered to to a political um identity, you know, but what is perplexing to me to to take it back to Keem 's point I have been talking with white racial justice activists, and I did so before George Floyd was murdered, so these were people who were showing up uh about race and caring about race when it wasn 't a front page news story um and uh many of them expressed real um, cynicism and skepticism about participating in mainstream
2: politics. Mm -hmm. Even if we moved away from sort of electoral politics, though, if you were an organizer who, you know, focuses on issues of, you know, I guess we're calling them issues of racial justice um, on the ground, right, and you're not necessarily talking about, you know, voting, but, you know, organizing um, on the ground, how should those people be metabolizing this very sobering data?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we do talk about in the essay that uh, there is evidence that legislators are responsive to things like protests. I mean, if you are showing up and you have a critical mass of people, that uh, a legislator can start to feel nervous that they may not get reelected. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if we're being very narrow kind of taking it back to... The reason we take it back to voting is because that is kind of the easiest thing people can do.
3: We are so critical of momentary exercises of, of say, upset or what have you in light of these moments. And so we just know from decades of social scientific research uh, that when we disconnect some structural problem or su- some systemic problem, when we disconnect it from a pattern and we make it about episodes, uh, that, that people respond differently. It matters how we talk and think about uh, the case of George Floyd. When we just focus on George Floyd as an episode, what we forget is that police violence against black folks is patterned, right? It's thematic, uh, to use more formal academic language. And so one of the things that happened, I think, rather unfortunately, Uh, was that so many people took George Floyd as an episode, as a moment to get exercised about, and didn't spend enough time reckoning, to use that word, reckoning with the fact that this has a long history uh, in the U.S. It's part of a pattern. And to upend systems, you got to do more than read about white fragility or even about anti-racism, You've got to be engaged in the practice of politics that is sometimes not as sexy, not as sort of meaningful, perhaps in the moment. But you've got to do the hard, dirty work of politics.
4: Agreed. I hmm. think you know there. My take on this is um, is cynical, like Hakeem's, but it's more a, a for me. It's a numeracy issue. Like uh, we are exaggerating this percentage of. Small, dedicated white people they are there, but they are small, so hmm. um, you know activists keep doing their thing um, this small group uh, will will be into it uh, they don't have to bend to try to meet white stri- uh, white stream america mainstream white America um, because as the as the essay demonstrates uh, that is a more uh, fickle uh, and volatile um kind of mark to hit so um so i don't think there has to be an adjustment on their part
2: you also cited in new york times retrospective that uh said that according to your research that even among white folks who remain sympathetic to the black lives matter movement the initiatives that they tend to support the things they tend to support tend to be like small board personal initiatives Could you say more about that
4: I think Hakeem and I have both talked about, you know, in the end as political scientists we care about the politics. Are our politics changing? Are our laws changing? Are the folks getting elected to office changing? Because if you have this groundswell of support and you know, all this um, enthusiasm and then it just goes into you know, buying books um, with no disrespect to the authors of those books, you know, I I don't (laughs) (laughs) Mm
3: -hmm. Okay
4: (laughs) Um, you know, that is seems to kind of be missing the mark. Um, and again, it's just, it's particularly perplexing because these folks often have the recognition of the system uh, that upholds this. Uh, it's not like, oh, this is all individual, you know, racist. They're like, no, this is built into our policy. It's baked into our laws. Um, and yet the solution uh, seems to be missing the mark a little.
3: I think, of, I think about the fact that white folks in this country have had a racial reckoning, I think, in recent years, but it's been much more localized (laughs) and much less meaningful uh, for the kinds of things I know Jen and I care about uh, than media depictions of that racial reckoning would suggest. Let me put a finer point on it. I think white folks are keenly aware on both sides of the political aisle of their racial identity. They have a sense of what people think about white people, they are reckoning with that, right? I think white people are indeed. And certainly the white people in my social circle, perhaps in Jen's social circle, perhaps in the social circles of those listening uh, to Code Switch, like the white folks we know are having quite a racial reckoning. All right, they reckoned. uh, But I think a lot of that, and I love the way that Jen puts this, a lot of that has been feeling bad about being white, engaging in in some anti-racist, quote-unquote, Uh, behaviors and the like, but Jin's evidence is suggesting a lot of this reckoning is starting at the bookshelf and ending on the couch. And uh, I just don't think that if that's what you know about the state of the reckoning, uh, you don't expect the reckoning to persist.
1: Our listeners... And a lot of our white listeners are going to have some deep, deep thinking to do after listening to that conversation.
2: And hopefully not just some thinking, but maybe some doing, too. You know what I mean? Hmm.
1: Well, let's end this with the cliche that I vow never to use, but does, I feel, work perfectly in this case. Time will tell, Jean. (laughs) Time will tell.
0: Well, listeners, that's our show. It originally aired in June of 2021, but it's one we're still thinking about, and we bet many of you are too. The guests you heard featured were Jennifer Chudy and Hakeem Jefferson. They're both poli-sci professors. Jen's at Wellesley, yay, shout out to my alma mater, and Hakeem's at Stanford. And their essay, titled Support for the Black Lives Matter Movement Surged Last Year, Did It Last?, was published in the New York Times in June of 2021. You can follow Codeswitch on Twitter and IG. We're at NPR Codeswitch on both those places. I'm at Karen Bates on Twitter. And subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash Codeswitch Newsletter. This episode was produced by Alyssa Jean Perry, Brianna Scott, and Leah Donella. It was edited by Leah and Steve Drummond. And it was fact-checked by Summer Tomad. And a big, big shout-out to the rest of the Codeswitch fam. Kumari Devarajan, Jess Kung, Christina Kala, and Sam Yellowhorse Kessler. Our intern is Asia Drain. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. Also, a huge thanks to the listeners who were brave and sent in their audio messages. Once again, I'm Karen Grigsby Bates. See ya.